And I trust that I have a word. It is not an easy word for me to have prepared. It is something that touches me. And it's, the title is, Why Revival? I'm going to try and answer three questions. What is revival? Who needs revival? And thereby, why revival? Why do we have revival? You know, when we, outside the church, the songs that we sing, people just keep on talking about revival, revival, revival. And you ask the people, why do they want revival? What is in it for them? Then you get quite varied answers. You get answers such as, I just love the chaos. I just love it when the Holy Spirit moves. I love the song and dance. I love the excitement. I love the joy. I love... So those are all things that the flesh enjoys. And it's good. It's good. So about a month ago, in his sermon, Pastor John said that revival originates with God, but it starts with us. We need to pray and live and be so on fire for God that people will come and watch us burn for God. So, last Sunday, Apostle Vincent brought an awesome message about revival. He said, revival is personal. He said, everyone has to choose whether they want to be part of revival or not. He also said that revival is personal and you have to catch it or you're going to miss it. He said, true revival starts with repentance. So that gives us an indication of what revival is about. He also said that you cannot cry dry tears for a revival. He didn't say it, but of course he meant that you cannot have a half-hearted repentance. You cannot say, I'm sorry, and say, I repent, but you're not really sorry. You're not going to change your ways. That's not going to cut it. That's not going to do anything for you. So what is revival? What is it about? You guys know that I'm actually technical. I'm an engineer. I like to check things out. So in 2013, the Center for Social Behavioral Sciences published, a, this was the fifth world conference, and they published a paper. A paper was presented by a Turkish university, and the paper was a study based in 1999 and 2000. And the paper as its title, part of its title, was the contextual factors in preferred strategy in determining the meaning of unknown words. Long title. What it basically comes down to is, you guys were all at high school, and at school we did comprehension tests. You enjoyed it? Where you get to read a story about somebody that was selling 66 melons and, you know, making this and doing that, and then you had to retell the story. But in that story, there would be unknown words. And you had to retell the story so that the teacher can figure out whether you've understood those words. And that's the purpose of a comprehension test. So they drafted this test, and there was 32 unknown words. And this is a second language. It's not the first language for these students. So this is a second language for them. So it's a slightly different view. So there were 32 unknown words, and there was strong and weak context for these words. And then they tested them with a comprehension test afterwards to determine how they came about to figure out the meaning of these words. Interesting thing, 44% of them guessed the meaning of the words 
purely from inferring. So just inferring in the context, they guess the meaning of the word. 29% actually consulted a dictionary or something. 24% just ignored the unknown word. And 4% at the test realized that they didn't even notice there's an unknown word. Now, if you're good in maths, you'll see that the statistics came to 101%, but that's typical of statistics, isn't it? It's made up. So about 15 years ago, I read another study, and it was done in the UK, and it was for first language, and it was for toddlers, first language. And they determined first language, what a child learns, how much of the vocabulary that a child learns is taught, and how much the child actually guesses the meaning of the words. And 65% of the meaning of words a child guesses. It's not taught to him. So what are the chances that we have in our Christian vocabulary, words like anointing, justified, being righteous, um, revival, that a fair percentage of us are guessing the meaning of the word because we hear somebody else use it and they only guess the meaning of the word when they use it in the sentence. So do we really know what the meaning of the word is? It's a good question. It's a valid question. I'm going to try and answer it. I think the majority of us have the wrong perception. But that majority being myself and my brother. <laughs> so sticking with statistics, December last year, somebody sent me a WhatsApp message, and it's from the Center of Bible Engagement. And I, being an engineer, went to this website, and I checked out. Is this false or true? Is this really something that I can go by? And on their website, they say that they had polled, well, not worldwide, but a lot of countries throughout the world. They excluded South Africa. 400,000 people in their polls. However, the poll in the video was only for North America and only included 40,000 people. But I think it is still fair to say that we should look at those statistics. So what they wanted to determine was a couple of things. First of all, are you a born-again believer? Yes or no? So you become the base reference. So if you're not a born-again believer, you become the reference. So everybody else will now be measured against your likelihood of committing some acts or participating in some acts, which we would hopefully frown upon. Maybe you love them, so you will not frown on these activities. Those who said that they were born-again believers, they then asked them a lot of subset questions. Well, this was in all the polls, and of course, the non-believers didn't have to complete this section. And they asked them to categorize them. Those who go to church once or less than once a month. That would be once in two months, once in three months, something like that. That's it. Then another category. Those who read their Bibles once a week. Read or listen to an audio and sometimes pray. Another category, two times. Another category, three times. Another category, four times. And then they looked at the statistics and they looked at these age grouping as well. So they separated them between youngsters, teenagers, young adults and adults so that they could see where the impact really comes about. Interesting. When they asked them a couple of questions about loneliness, anger, bitterness in relationship. 
excessive consumption of alcohol, sex before marriage, being spiritually stagnant, the likelihood of viewing pornography, sharing your faith, discipling somebody, the likelihood of memorizing scriptures. What they found was quite astonishing. The non-believers, of course, yes, they have a good likelihood of participating in all of that. Those Christians who go to church less than once a month, no difference. So non-believer and believer, when they polled them, the answers were the same. Those who read the Bible once a week, answers were exactly the same. No change. Those who read the Bible twice a week, answers were identical. Those who read the Bible three times a week, the teenagers were less likely to consume excessive amounts of alcohol. That's the only difference. Then, four times a week, all of a sudden, spirit comes alive. Here's the number. 30% less likely to be lonely if you read your Bible more than four times a week. Read or listen to it and pray. 32% less likely to get angry. 40% less likely to be bitter in your relationship, dissatisfied in your relationship. 57% less likely to consume large amounts of alcohol. 60% less likely to have sex before marriage. 60% less likely to feel stagnant spiritually. 61% less likely to watch pornography. 228% more likely to share the gospel. 230% more likely to disciple somebody. 407% more likely to memorize scriptures. This is the impact of reading your Bible regularly. And this is the impact of not doing it regularly. Of not making a commitment. Of those that said that they are Christians, that come out of a Christian home, on average, that Christian household had four Bibles. On average, the teenagers that grow up and leave that house, eight out of ten, turn their backs on Christianity. Why? Why would they turn their back against Christianity? Because of the example they saw. So, what does revival mean? It has its roots in a Latin word, which basically means to live again. When a person is drowning and is pulled out of the water and the correct procedure, the proper procedure is administrated and is activated and he starts to recover, we say that he's revived. When a fire goes down but we see there's still a glowing ember and we take a board or we take a fan and we fan on it and we see after a while a flickering and there the fire comes back to life, we say we've revived it. We cannot speak of revival of something that has never lived before. If something has not lived before, it cannot participate in revival. Revival is it's a benefit only for those who have a spiritual life. Only they can be subjects of revival. If you've been spiritually alive, only you can be part of revival. And I know we've been praying for revival for the world. But they cannot be revived. It's impossible. Revival must begin with God's people. And revival ends with God's people. 
It is only for us. It excludes the world. But there are many, many benefits that come out of revival, and they are the benefactors of that. So revivalists for us, they get the benefits of the revival. It is sorrowful that many who are spiritually alive are in great need of revival. A person in sound health, taking daily sustenance, you know, eating a proper diet, body in a good condition, we don't think that they need revival. We hardly ever look outside midday sun, look at the sun and say the sun needs revival. We don't look at a river in flood and say this river needs revival. Trees planted by a stream that bears fruit and it's loaded with fruit, that is the condition that the sons of God ought to be in permanently. We should be constantly in that condition. We should not need revival. You know, if we read Psalm 23 and we claim and we profess Psalm 23 over our own lives, we say that He makes us lie down by green pastures. In other words, we're feeding on green pastures. We are next to living waters. We say He restores our soul. We say He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemy. We say that He anoints my head with oil. We say my cup runneth over. Those things are talking about blessings. That is the condition that we should be in. If that is what we profess, if that is what we are saying, we're saying the Lord is my shepherd, then that is the condition that we should be in. We should not be asking for revival. In 3 John 1 verse 2 to 4, John writes to his spiritual children, and he's praying a prayer over them, and he's greeting them, and he's praying a prayer. And he's saying to them that I pray that your soul would prosper in good health. And then he ends off, and he says, but I rejoice that I've heard that you are walking in faith. So they've got a good testimony that they do not need revival, yet he's still praying for them to be in good health and good. A spiritually alive person ought to outgrow, outclimb the period in his life where he's constantly crying, revive us, revive us, revive us. Constant cry for revival indicates much sin in your life. If a man goes down into a well or a chamber and there's bad air, he does not sense that that gas is killing him. There's nothing, nothing that warns him. He will pass away. If he's not pulled up and revived soon enough, his life would be wasted. But how many Christians go down into worldly company and they follow unholy principles? And they become so carnal that they spiritually starve and they die. And they need to be revived again. And that's the condition that so many unfortunately find themselves in. That they've gone into worldly company. If a man starves himself, take a low intake diet, doesn't eat properly, eventually his system breaks down. He gets sick. He goes to bed. Imagine you see that person lying there on the bed. It is a labor for him even to lie on the bed. It is too much effort for him to even raise a finger to chase away the fly that sits on his face. In this image that I've shown you, the flies would represent demons. It represents the 
constant attack, the pestering, and he's spiritually so weak that he cannot even chase that away. God says, with the finger of God, I can chase away the demon, know that the kingdom of God has come. That's what Jesus says. But you see that weakened person lying there, and he can't even do that. But he brought it on himself. He decided not to eat. He decided not to follow a proper diet. He decided that once a month is good enough. Once a week reading the Bible is good enough for me. They say that they hate sin, but they hate it so weakly that you might as well say they love it. They say that they mourn, but only half-heartedly. They don't get stirred when they hear the word of God. Enthusiasm is an unknown luxury for them. They don't know what it is to be enthusiastic about God's work. They don't get anxious. They don't chomp at the bit to do something for God's kingdom. But rather not. If they find a pull of wisdom, they don't even recognize it. Revival brings these people to the state where they ought to be. Revival's immediate fruit is joy, is vigor, is happiness. It is an overflowing of the Holy Spirit. This is the blessing that we need to pray for, for the prodigals. We need to be praying that the revival comes so that they can get those benefits. Revival must start from receiving a living truth. Revival does not come from mere excitement, from the stomping of our feet, from the preacher slapping the pulpit, from the laughter in the pews, from the cries and the rolling around. Those excitements, those loud noises, only stirs the flesh. It does nothing for the spirit. The Holy Spirit must come into a living heart through a living truth and bring nourishment to the spirit. To obtain revival, we must go directly to the Holy Ghost. We cannot manufacture revival ourselves. We have to go the life-giving flame, the fire that is needed comes from the Holy Ghost. We must go to the cross and look up at our dying Savior. We must expect when we look at Him that our faith will be renewed. We must eat of His flesh and of His blood. Proverbs 8 verse 32 shows us Hearken unto me, O ye children, for blessed are they that keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and refuse it not. Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates. You can go and read, and most commentators get it right, some don't. Watching daily at my gates means to daily. Search for my wisdom. To daily search for my wisdom. Waiting at the posts of my doors. The post there refers to the post where the blood of the Passover lamb was smeared on. Daily we need to look at the sacrifice that was paid. Daily we need to look for the wisdom from God. Daily. For whoso findeth me, findeth life. We're talking about revival. There it is. Whoso findeth me, findeth life, and shall obtain favor in the Lord. 
You know, in Genesis 2 verse 18, God looked at Adam and he said, it's not good that man is alone. I make to him Isaac. I make to him helper. That's the literal translation of Genesis 2 verse 18. That word Isaac, helper, occurs quite a few times in the Old Testament. Interesting, it occurs most often when the person or the nation of Israel found themselves in a situation, sometimes self-inflicted, where they could not save themselves. They could not find a way out, and then God helped them. That word Iser means a help, a helper that stands by my side. The Hebrews say, against me or in front of me. He is not my servant, somebody that comes into my side, hooks alongside next to me, and helps me through this, takes me through this. This is the older ox. This is the more wise ox getting into the yoke next to me and pulling this thing through for you. That is what helper is. That is what every wife is for her husband. She is the helper. When the husband fails, the wife is the one that helps. She's the one that stands there. So in Hebrew, Elohim is God. And they shorten his name quite often to El. And they take Ezer and they add it to that. And they have the name Eliezer. God is my helper. He's the one who stands next to me. Eliezer is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. I know he was Aaron's grandson. He was the high priest. But he's symbolic of the high priest. If we look at um, Abram, he's symbolic of the father. Isaac of Jesus. Abram is about to sacrifice Isaac. We read about that in Genesis 22. So there we have the father sacrificing Jesus, but we have Abram sacrificing Isaac. And that's the symbolism there. Then we read of Abram coming down the mountain. We do not read of Isaac coming down the mountain. The next time that we read about Isaac, we don't read about him in Genesis 23. We read about him in Genesis 24. The first time that we read of Isaac is when he's mentioned when Abram sends his servant Eliezer to go and get a bride. Next time that we see Jesus, he comes from the, the well, Be'er, Lachei, Ra'i, the well of the one who sees me always. He's coming from the well of the living water, and we see him in the field when Eliezer, when the Holy Spirit arrives with his bride. That is when we're going to see Jesus next. That's when we saw Isaac next. That's when we're going to see Jesus next. So we know that the Holy Spirit and Eliezer, there's some link there. We can follow that link. Jesus says in John 14 verse 16, I will pray the Father to give you a comforter. The Greek word is parakletos. You go and look in a concordance what parakletos is. One to come alongside to help you. So, we have confidence to say that Eliezer is the Holy Spirit. Let's go and read John 11, verse 1. It's a long story, but it's an important portion. A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. Lazarus it's Greek. It's a Greek writing. 
of El Azar, El Ezer. El Ezer, God's helper, was sick of Bethany, Beth, place of, house of, any four probable roots, two roots I enjoy, I think those are the more accurate ones. Any means either to answer or to cohabitate. The Holy Spirit cohabitates with us. So, Eliezer of Bethany, of the house of answer, was sick. This is the town of Mary and her sister Martha. John does a very interesting thing here in verse 2. He says, It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. What's interesting to me, at least, he writes as if we know about the story about Mary anointing Jesus' feet, but he's not yet told the story. He only tells the story in John chapter 12. But he writes as if we already know the story. Now, John actually writes his letters about 30 years after Mark, Matthew, and Luke wrote this. So it's very probable that people already knew the story. And Jesus, when it was done, he said it would be told of her wherever the gospel is spread. So John was right to tell us, assuming that we already know, because he knew that Jesus said we would know about her. Another interesting thing, but it's for another sermon or for afterwards, is about the ointment that she used. Let's go to the next verse. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. They don't mention Lazarus. It says, the one that you love is sick. That includes us. Includes all of us. We can go to verse 11. So, I will fill in the gap. Jesus tarried two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let go to Judea. They said, no, we will get killed. Then he said, our friend Lazarus, he says this here, our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of his sleep. His disciples then said, well, if he sleeps, it's good. He will recover. But you see, they did not see the symbolism they were so tied up in the physical realm, they didn't see it. There was something happening there. Verse 14. And Jesus had to say to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Verse 33. When therefore Jesus saw her weeping, now this is Mary, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. That word groan is an inward cry of the spirit. The concordance says it's probably something similar to the noise a horse would make. Something just, it's no words. He was just groaning in his spirit. And verse 38, Therefore, again, groaning in himself, he cometh to the grave. It was a grave and a stone lay upon it. Now what did I say? They're missing something here. Let's pause this here. Let's go to Genesis 6 verse 3. Because they missed it. And I thank God for the Holy Spirit. Because He reveals these things to me. 
You know Genesis 6, you know what it's all about. It's just prior to the flood. Two verses before this, God says that the sons of man had now married and taken the daughters of man. So now God says, My spirit shall not always strive for man, for that he also is flesh. So the fact that the sons of God had now married daughters of mankind, God says, Now you've become carnal. You've now become flesh. You've now become carnal. And now my spirit can no longer strive with man. That word strive is the Hebrew word dun. Again, some concordances get it right. Actually, I haven't found a concordance that gets it right. They all get it right, but not according to me. They, they're wrong. They say it should mean my spirit will not live with man. Why do I say it's wrong? Because we cannot live without God's spirit. Strife means to shield, to contest, to govern. The Holy Spirit is there to strive with you. If you intend to do something, He strives with you. He contends with you. He protects you. He tries to govern you. But because man had become so carnal, God said, my spirit will no longer strive with you. My spirit will no longer protect you. My spirit will no longer be with you. My spirit will be in you. But He's no longer going to control you. He's no longer going to guide you. So when Lazarus became sick, Jesus said, you know, from God's point of view, Lazarus was just asleep. He's just not active anymore, but he's still there. But when the disciples didn't grasp it, he said to them, from your point of view, God's help is dead. God's help is dead according to you because you don't notice it. You don't realize what fallen state you're in. Do we realize what fallen state we're in? Is the Holy Spirit contesting with you? Can you still hear Him cry? Can you still hear Him protecting you, calling for you? Let's go to John eleven thirty nine. Then Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said to him, Lord, he stinketh. Of course he stinketh. He's carnal. He's been dead for four days. One day is like a thousand years. Fall of man happened 4,000 years before Jesus came, before the Holy Spirit was poured out on us. 4,000 years we've been dead in our sins. We didn't care. We were living as if we are blessed and we're just the cat's whiskers. But we've been dead and now in man. Verse 41. They took away the stone from the dead where he laid. And Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that thou hast heard me. I knew that thou hearest me. Bad grammar, but it has to be. Because the word knew has to be past tense, perfect tense, because he already knew long time ago that the Father would hear him. He knew that he was sent. What did the Father hear? He never prayed a prayer. He groaned twice. And he wept. He wept for you. He wept for me. He wept because he knew that we were sick. We were the loved ones that were dying. And he wept for us. And he said, because of the people that stand by, that they might believe that you have sent me, I say it. 
And when he had thus spoken, he said with a loud voice, Eliezer, come forth. Holy Spirit, come forth. Holy Spirit, come forth. Come forth. Go and check verse 53, what happened. From that day forth, they took counsel. Who took counsel? Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, all of them took counsel together for to put him to death. Why? Why did the church try and kill him? Because if you have the Holy Spirit, you don't need them anymore. Then you take away their income. They were so wealthy, they were so filthy rich, and they could fleece you repeatedly. And now he is calling the Holy Spirit forth, and he's now setting every man free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. But my question to you is, do you hear him? Do you hear him calling? Can you hear him? Can you feel him? Do you sense him? If we are revived by the Holy Spirit, it will be a blessing for the unsaved. If I throw a stone in a pond, it ripples out. And those ripples reach out to the outer edges. We need to pray more fervently for the sinners. Longing for them. Loving to bless them. I listened to a rabbi. He's actually a believer. Saying, when he got baptized... He got shamad. It's a Hebrew word. Shamad. Learn it. Memorize it. Speak it over yourself. He got shamad. He got totally and utterly destroyed. There was nothing left of him when he got baptized. Because he didn't want to raise up and stand up and be himself anymore. He wanted to live only if Christ lives through him. He got shamad. I pray that each and every one of us get shamad. Each and every one of us has the desire to be totally and utterly destroyed by God Almighty, that we do not live without Him, that we do not live without His Spirit, that we do not go another mile, another day without His Spirit. We need to listen and read the Word of God daily. Why daily? The Israelites had to do it. If it was good enough for them, it's good enough for us. We can read in Daniel 8, verse 11 to 13, and Daniel 11, verse 31, he was shocked by a vision that he saw. And what shocked him was that there was an abomination that was going to stop the daily sacrifices. The daily sacrifices was precious to them. And he saw that this abomination would stop it. And we are satisfied with one day in a week. And we tap ourselves on the shoulder and say, I made it to church today, I'm good. I've got everything my spirit needs to live from. I'm healthy and I'm strong. I'm blessed. Matthew 26 verse 55, Jesus says, I sat daily with you teaching in the tabernacle or in the temple. Mark 14 verse 48, he says, I was daily with you in the temple teaching. Luke 19 verse 47 says, and he taught daily in the temple. So that was Jesus. What did the apostles do? In Acts 2 verse 46 we read, And they continued daily with one accord in the temple. Verse 47 says, And the Lord added daily to the church. 
about the Bereans who read in Acts 17, verse 11. That he says, and these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all readiness of mind. And they searched the scriptures daily, whether things were so. Daily, daily, I pray that we get a hunger for the word of God. But not just for myself, for the lost. We pray and we sing songs about Ezekiel's vision, about the dry bones, and I think we realize that we are those dry bones. But we sing as if we are singing about a world that needs to be revived. But as I said to you, the world cannot be revived. Revival is for us and for us alone. We have to participate in revival. We are the only ones that can be revived because we were spiritually alive or are still spiritually alive. Or there's some inkling of a life still left in you, I hope. If God is speaking to you, I ask, would you stand with me in prayer? Would you stand with me right now? I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal to each and every one of us what's your present state? Spiritually, what is your status? Is there anything lacking in you? Or are you okay? Are you okay as you thought you were okay? Are we in need of revival? And if so, asking for help. Eliezer is with you. He's now in you. He's there to help you. Are you ready to be helped? Are you willing to be helped? Are you shamat? Let's make a declaration to grow, to outclimb this deficient diet that we've gotten so used to. This self-imposed diet of a lack of spiritual food. Let's repent, not with half-broken hearts, but full repentance. That we intend to be a blessing for the sinners and to burn for our Lord. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word comes in love to us, that it comes to correct us, that it comes to restore us, that it comes to guide us. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would start with me. Start with me, Father. As Apostle Vincent said, not my brother, not my sister, but with me, Lord. Start with me. Not my mother, not my father, but start with me, Lord. I'm in the need of revival. I need revival, Lord. I need to be totally totally and utterly destroyed. I need to daily stand and look at my dying Savior on the cross and eat of His flesh and His blood and drink of His wisdom that comes from His Word and love the world that is dying. Oh, Father, I thank You. I thank You for Your blessings over us. I thank You for this house where we have such awesome teaching, where we have such good guidance, Father. But if we in this house cannot even make it, what is going to happen to the rest of the world? My Lord, my Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for the times that I was so selfish to sit down and relax and rather spend another hour on Facebook than to read your word. 
Lord, I'm guilty of not putting in every effort of every day to get and grow more like you, Jesus. I've had the opportunity yesterday, I have the opportunity today, and I trust that you'll give me an opportunity tomorrow to become more like you. Father, I commit myself to grow, to outgrow this condition where I'm calling for revival, but that I will be the revival, that I will be the fire that draws people to you, that they will be searching for me to see what it is like to see somebody burning for God. I thank you, Father. I thank you, Father.